All right, hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, have a very special guest. He comes to us from Australia. His name is Dr. Tasman Walker, and he is with a website, but he also has a background in the general subject of creationism. But a lot of his information that I saw was on creation.com. So it's C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N.com. And we're going to talk about his inquiry and insights into something that's much different than people would think, which is the legacy of the earth, how the dates of the earth, and maybe also contradicts kind of evolutionary biology. But he can talk more about that. So Dr. Taz Walker, are you there? Uh, it's good to good to be here, Bill. It's really nice to be on your program. Great. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your background or your name, can you talk about what led you kind of to this inquiry and then what your kind of view of creationism is that uh, contradicts kind of the modern scientific worldview? Yeah, well, uh, I guess you'd have to say it came out of my Christian commitment when I was in my early teens. I uh, made a commitment to Christ and uh, I've always been interested in how things work, pulling things apart, putting things together, and I ended up becoming an engineer. So that's uh, really my background. So when I became a Christian, I wanted to figure out how everything fitted together and uh, how it fitted in with science. And that really started a journey for me. And uh, I guess it really came together when I read the book, uh, the, the Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris. I was in my 20s when I read that. Before that, I really couldn't see how it fitted together. And I connected with uh, a group called Creation Science Foundation which was active at the time in uh, the city where I live, in Brisbane, Australia. And so I started getting their literature, Creation Magazine, Journal of Creation, and that sort of thing. And I became very interested in how things worked and how they fitted together. So, uh, yeah, so that's really my journey. Um, I worked as an engineer. I was involved with uh, power station design, power station operation, power station planning. Uh, in, a, in the state where I live, uh, I was involved in a, uh, the, the planning of a hydroelectric scheme, uh, which over many years. And, uh, I, and as a result of that, I, I was interested in geology, but really more as a mechanical engineer than as a geologist. But I became interested in, well, I couldn't see how uh, Noah's flood, which was a, a key thing to understanding how it all everything worked, I couldn't see how that fitted in with the geologic column. So I developed a little um, uh, back of the envelope uh, model scheme for how it worked. And uh, so through various circumstances, I was prompted to write an abstract on that and submit it to a creation conference, which was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in uh, quite a number of years ago. And I, I remember showing it to a fellow at where I worked in the uh, power industry. He was not a Christian, but I showed it to him and he was interested to read it. And when he handed it back to me, he said, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. He said, but no one will take any notice of you because you're not a geologist. You don't have any geological uh, degrees. So as a result of that, it prompted me to go back as a mature age student and study geology. And I got a, a, a a Bachelor of uh, Earth Science, Bachelor of Science in Earth Science, and I got a, uh, we, we call it an honours degree in science, uh, in Earth Science. And uh, after I'd done that, I ended up uh, connecting with Creation Ministries International, 
which is where I am now as a speaker, a researcher, writer, editor, everything. Right. Now, there's, there's a lot of material there. So people should go check out creation.com because we're going to kind of talk about Noah's flood and geology, but there's so many other address. There's a whole set of documentaries and things like that. But so you have an academic background and applied that. Now, I've had other guests where they, we talk about how science and creation, actually people like the early scientists, Galileo, uh, guys who uh, categorized all the animals, were all Christians. But that something has happened more recently within the last couple hundred years. So you are seeing you're kind of a rare different than the modern scientific tradition in that you're seeing things through a biblical worldview, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Although geology started with a biblical worldview and uh, it's mentioned in the science degree and various science textbooks, but only as a throwaway line and sort of, can you believe they used to believe the Bible, but now we, uh, now we understand science and that sort of thing. So geology does have a, um, have a Christian heritage. Uh, one of the uh, early uh, uh, pioneers of geology, Nicholas Steno, uh, he lived in the 1600s, and he wrote a book about, uh, about geology, which is used even today. His principles are sort of the very first principles that you learn doing geology. And uh, he was a biblical creationist. He started with the Bible and used that as his way of uh, interpreting the geological history of uh, the area where he lived in Tuscany. So um, that's something that uh, modern geologists don't really want to know is that uh, these guys that they're still teaching about uh, were, were biblical creationists. And so that changed. So it started out as a biblical um, uh, a believing the Bible and that changed in the uh, late uh, 1600s, 1700s, uh, with uh, a change with the Enlightenment, so-called Enlightenment, uh, a, a desire to dispense with any with the Bible and find a a, a sort of a secular, uh, naturalistic way of explaining things. Right. So this is it's marked the change, and you're trying to bring that back. Like when you look at, and I know that catastrophism exists. There's all kinds of catastrophes. There was like the Krakatoa exploded. There's evidence of all these catastrophes. Can you talk mm. about catastrophism in the context of Noah's flood and uh, biblical history? Yeah, well, Noah's flood, of course, was a catastrophe. It um, it lasted uh, tw uh, just over twelve months, and uh, the uh, we always hear it rained for forty days and forty nights, and. Uh, it, the, the waters not only came from the rain, but they came from under the ground. And so the waters rose, rose, and rose until every high mountain under the entire heavens were covered. So we read about that. And for a long time, I couldn't figure out how it tied in with science until I read the book, The Genesis Flood. And Noah's Flood is the key to understanding how the whole world fits together. And so Noah's flood, the uh, modern geologist, he, you've got a picture up there uh, of Nicholas Steno, but there's another guy called uh, James Hutton. He was a Scottish physician and he was very interested in geology and he wrote a book called um, uh, Theory of the Earth. And he assumed and he made the assumption that we have to explain geology by what we see happening now. It's interesting that... Um, 
geology is uh, it's different from the sort of normal the sciences of chemistry and physics and those sorts of things where you actually do experiments and you measure things in the present so you it's the repeatable experiment so uh, I did that as an engineer I, I was very much involved in fluid dynamics and uh, we you would set up experiments and make measurements and record them and uh, I would try to get my experiments to match or see how they agreed with uh, experiments which are done in the US and as a consequence of that that's repeatable experiments which are done in the present which can be observed and documented and uh, so that's the power of science which gives us the modern technology but when it comes to geology you can't go back in time to see what actually happened you have to make assumptions so we can make the observations in the present we can uh, look at the rocks and see how they're related and look at the landscapes and we can do all those sorts of measurements on the fossils in the present but the question how did they get here is uh how do you do that? Well, James Hutton is the guy. He lived in the 1600s. He died in the late 1600s, I think it was. Uh, and uh, he is the guy that basically said, well, you have to use what we can see happening now. So we can see things happening now and we assume it's always been like that. So that was James Hutton's assumption. It's called the principle of uniformitarianism. And as a consequence of that, you end up with an earth that is uh, untold eons of time old. Uh, it's sort of, the, he, James Hutton said, there's uh, no vestige of a beginning, no sign of an end. So he had an idea of an eternal cyclical geological processes. It's called uh, the, 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 the rock cycle that's been adapted into. So that's the new philosophy that came in. And based on that philosophy, Darwin then, he was very interested in geology, but he applied that. He applied that to um, the idea of biology, and so he he used the slow and gradual changes in biology. So that's where the modern philosophies come in, and that's basically it's really naturalism, the idea that everything made itself by natural processes, but it came in through geology. Right. So you're saying, just to restate that, you're saying that Darwinism came out of an understanding of geology, correct? Of like Absolutely. The fossil record. Okay, yeah. so, so there's different interpretations of the fossil record, right? So you have this different, you have the different strata, you show that in some of your talks, but there's also kind of a different stratification of ages or Pleistocene or what these ages, how, this is the geologic time scale. So how is the modern science interpreting this and how do you interpret this? So basically, the geologists do a great job as far as, uh, you know, making observations of the rocks. And uh, what you've got up there is a, a geological time scale. And so that uh, came out of the 1800s uh, where they, as they started exploring things, they started naming things. And so they give the rocks different names, like the rocks around De Devon in England were called the Devonian, the chalk... Um, the chalk rocks uh, in the English Channel on the British coast uh, were called um, the Cretaceous. So they gave them names to document them, and that, that's what appears in the geologic column. So you've, you've got the Cambrian, which uh, came out of Wales, which what used to be called the Cambria. 
and then you've got the, then we have things like the Devonian and the the uh, Carboniferous where the, the the coal coal deposits in England. So that's that's the observation. So when you look at the geologic column, basically it's a, a record of what's actually observed, and the the names are fine, but the dates along the side which they've got dates, the, Ca the Cambrian is sort of 500 million years old, 600 million years old. You've got the Devonian, 300 million years old. So those dates come out of Hutton's assumption that present processes uh, are, are enough to explain the, the rocks. And so out of that assumption comes the long eons of time. So the eons of time were there back in the uh, early 1800s, even before that, back in the late 1700s this concept of uh, eons of time. And it comes from assuming that the present processes have always operated the way they, they have. And so the eons of time was long before radioactive dating. Radioactive uh, Radioactivity was discovered in the uh, late 1800s and it was applied to dating, uh, you know, radioactive dating in the early 1900s and it's applied now. And people think that the long ages were discovered by radioactive dating, but it wasn't. It comes out of an assumption. The assumption is that uh, is that the present processes have always operated the way they have and that the global flood described in Genesis was not a real event and it did not impact our globe and so we can ignore it. So that's basically the assumption. But there is proofs outside of the Bible that the flood existed. I think like in 16 or 18 cultures have some type of myth that involves a flood. So there is in human records the event of something of a giant watering. And I think you even mentioned, and I was aware of this, that even at the highest peaks, and this is a statistic, this is a fact, is that there's records of water somehow being there or are records of fossils or, or remnants of aquatic life, right? Yes, at the top of Mount Everest has got uh, marine fossils. It's got uh, uh, um, sea lilies and that the, the, the buds and stems of sea lilies have been recovered from up the top of Mount Everest. So the, the idea of fossils and being on the top of mountains, uh, everybody knows, knows that that's the case. But that's one of the evidences that of what you'd expect from a global flood. The other thing that's uh, in, uh, important is to understand the movements of the crust of the earth, the tectonics that occurred. So the, the floodwaters just didn't come up. It involved a, a, a huge cataclysm on the earth where uh, the crust of the earth was uh, fractured and it was folded and sediments were deposited they were metamorphosed and then they were folded and it's just an ongoing process which occurred. Uh, and I liken it to the, it's not a very good analogy really, but the sinking of the Titanic. You know, it took about three hours, but it was a, a process where there was a, a gash in the side and then the water filled it up and then the chip listed and then it it, you know, it broke open and, you know, so there's this ongoing processes which occurred as a result of, of the sinking of the Titanic, but it's the same thing on the earth. There's ongoing processes which occurred uh, over this one-year period, enormous processes, and today, you know, geologists with these long-age glasses try to interpret it in terms of slow and gradual over millions of years. Right.
so so that worldview is what the earth is a bill like a billion years old or something like that and you're you do you have like a literal biblical worldview that's like similar to the time like how jews date time but it started yes. six thousand years ago well when you think about the past how do we know the date of anything uh, basically it's history uh, it, without history it's uh, virtually impossible to be able to put a date on something and uh, I use analogies like timing of a swimming race. You know, if you didn't, if you didn't uh, observe the timepiece when the race started, you can't know what the time was when the race finished, how long it took. So I, I, I look at, at the, uh, the Bible is a, a history book. I consider it to be a history book. I assume it to be a history book. There's good evidence for that. And uh, there's good reasons for that. And so assuming it's a history book, uh, the chronological information is very clear. That's about four and a half thousand years ago to the flood. And before that, another 1700 years. So it's about uh, 6,000 years to the creation event. And so uh, if, you, if you don't have that, it's really hard to actually put a date on anything. Right. So then, so you believe in the, now, do you also believe that the Genesis account, the seven days is literal as well? So all the events. Yeah. That, so those are literal. Then what in that, the, so the biblical worldview and then the modern science worldview are different. So how do you address the kind of view that there's these, so you think, you think these scales are almost like evil evolution where, there's really no proof. They're just putting times and dates on that. How do you square the biblical worldview with this modern science worldview? Well, you use the word worldview, and worldview is a way of looking at the world. It's, it it in, involves beliefs, our belief system. And so when you say the science worldview, uh, I would I would call that uh, the a naturalistic worldview, Better. right? So there's the, there's the science of naturalism, where the assumption is that everything happened by natural processes and it all made itself. So that's our worldview assumption. And then you've got the assumption that the Bible's recording uh, true history. So you've got the science that comes out of that assumption. So it's not science versus faith. It's basically, it's two faiths and the science of these two different faiths. And so uh, as creationists, we, we accept everything that's observed, you know, the, uh, anything that evolutionists observe and document and measure, uh, they're, they're the facts. It's the interpretations that uh, we look at differently. We place different interpretations on these, just the same way that the people who have the naturalistic belief system, they interpret it within that belief system. So how does the creationist interpret the kind of uh geolog not the record but like uh you know the record of animals that have been caught in you know dirt or whatever that's all due to uh uh the events like the flood is that right yes basically most of the most of the geologic system uh, was created, formed during the Noah's flood. It was a monstrous event. And what is uh, what we see on the earth, what we have access to is uh, basically goes from, from the beginning of the flood 
where there was a huge, you know, it was a highly energetic, catastrophic uh, beginning uh, uh, that occurred. And that goes from the Precambrian, you know, and, and there, there would be dates on that of two billion years. Right. Uh, and so uh, that, that's, that is, uh, we would say, no, it's not two billion years. It was early in the flood. It was the right at the very, you know, very in the early weeks or days or weeks. And then it goes right through to basically to the uh, Mesozoic, uh, which is, and the Cenozoic, which is the, the very uh, most recent rocks, would, would, were formed towards the end of the flood. So not a lot was formed after the flood because humans have to live on the earth. And uh, so you have the Ice Age after the flood. So basically the order on the geologic column, uh, a, guy, a friend of mine, a, a colleague, Michael Ord's written an article called, you know, the, ge called the geologic column is a general order of the flood, uh, but it's, uh, there are exceptions to it. And so um, that's, that's uh, the, the, um, so, so the, the you, would, you would interpret like all of the, the kind of wear and tear, like at, uh, you know, some of these Grand Canyon or something like that, that would all be post flood. Um, wear and tear, is that correct? Well, the Grand Canyon was laid down by the floodwaters as the waters were rising. So you have these, you know, very horizontal, long, uh, thin uh, layers of rock, these strata, which they extend for hundreds of kilometres. So that was the waters uh, washing sediments into the area. And then you have the waters of Noah's flood receding when they covered the whole area that carved the flat surfaces at the top you see a lot of flat surfaces in grand canyon and then the canyon itself was carved by the tail end of the flood as the flood the waters were almost yeah, drained off yeah. and it was and it carved the, uh, the the canyon itself and there's uh, some amazing features in the canyon which point to the uh, the, the fact that uh, there was water uh, ponded on the top of the uh, plateau there uh, which um, which drained and formed these uh, side canyons and, and this um, fractal shapes for the canyon. So it's it's very fascinating, and there's articles on creation.com about that, about the uh, carving of the Grand Canyon. So what are the things that are on top that indicate that there was water there? Um, well, there's sediments which have been deposited by water that's uh, on the canyon plus there's fossils in the sediments which indicate that they were you know that these things were buried in water and then what else the, the fact that the canyons carved flat indicates that some sort of watery process has carved it flat now please continue interesting with the canyon if you look at the canyon there's um We've got this belief system of geologists have this belief system. The the, uh, the the long age uniformitarian geologists they don't like that term so much these days. But the people who believe that everything happened by slow and gradual processes and there never was a global flood that's their belief. They see, for example, there's some uh, one of the the, uh, the the layers in the Grand Canyon is called the Coconino sandstone which looks like it's got very big sand dunes in it, very large sand dunes. And because it, they're so large, uh, the long-age geologists uh, can't interpret those as water laid 
because it would mean uh, a watery uh, flood of biblical proportions. And so whenever they come across something like this, they say, oh, it must have formed in a desert, right? So they, they interpret it as forming in a desert because of the large sand dunes. But there's, there's quite strong evidence that, these, that uh, point to it actually forming in water. And, and it, it indicates how these interpretations lead us down a wrong path. You know, when they say there was a desert and then they then use it against uh, against a, a biblical uh, geologist, they'll say, see, how could you possibly have a desert in the middle of Noah's flood? And it comes from their interpretation, not the actual uh, fact that it's not a fact itself. And what other geologic proofs are there for people who aren't aware of creation and Noah's flood? Can you think any other ones offhand? Oh, there's lots of evidences for Noah's flood. I talked about the flat the flat surfaces. There, uh, all around the world, you find these flat surfaces on the top of plateaus where there's been erosion. That's a, an evidence of the waters of Noah's flood covering the whole whole area. Another evidence is the as the waters, the waters of Noah's flood, they covered the whole continents of, um, of North America and Asia and all the places, uh, the whole of the world. Um, when the waters then started to drain off. The ocean basins sank, gradually sank, and the continents were uplifted. And mainstream geologists would say that. They talk about the, the uplift of the continent. So it's, it's accepted that this happened. So creationists see that as being the process as, as which ended the flood. And as the waters flowed off, they eroded the surface. And... Uh, uh, they, they eroded out lots of rocks, and uh, there's particularly one sort of very hard rock called a, a quartzite, which were eroded from the Rocky Mountains, and these were these were carried by water to the west and to the east. And so you have what they these quartzite boulders. They can be up to uh, 18 inches across. They're rounded, like they're being rounded in a water in a being carried along by a watery river, and they cover such a huge area. That's that's an evidence of enormous water flows which uh, were connected with the tail end of the flood as the waters were flowing off the continents. And what other, is there any other proofs other than that that you would add to the proofs of creation? Or, or no well, flood, actually? I, I wouldn't call it proofs. I wouldn't call it proofs. I'd say evidence. evidence. See, when you talk about the uh, naturalistic, uh, uniformitarian worldview, they interpret the evidence within that framework. And then that interpretation is used as a proof, but strictly it's not, it's an interpretation. And so we would, one of the other evidences is, is um, of the biblical worldview is, um, I talked about the flat surfaces, I talked about the quartzite boulders, as the waters of Noah's flood reduced even further, you find that the, the waters, uh, the, there's rivers which flow through mountain ranges, which is surprising because the, the landscape is supposed to have been uh, eroded by rainfall and, uh, and snow and ice and that. And so you'd expect 
the rivers to flow around mountain ranges, but we find that they, all over the world, they flow through mountain ranges and they, it's called a water gap. Well, that's easily explained uh, as a consequence of Noah's flood. As the waters were going down, eventually parts of the earth erose above the, the waters and uh, the waters then went through gaps, flowed through anything which is a bit lower and eroded that down to form a water gap. So there's water gaps, hundreds and hundreds of them uh, uh, in the Appalachians and other parts of the US. So water gaps are an evidence of Noah's flood. That's good. It's quite yeah. amazing, really. Pardon me? It's quite amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, no. But it is amazing because I would say that you're probably in a very small minority amongst people who interpret, uh, like you said, interpret the signs and the and the dates and the fossil record and things like that. Um, so the fossil record is what you're saying is has been laid down during the flood events, leading through the flood and, and then the receding of the waters is what made the fossil record, not yes, something that happened right. over a billion times. Gotcha. That's right. And so, <clears throat> what has, have you debated kind of the modern naturalists and, uh, you know, gradualists and, and how, what is your experience with that? I mean, I assume it's similar to a Christian debating like an evolutionary biologist or something like that. But uh, what's the, can you relate or tell about kind of what happens in, in your telling this view to kind of modern science? Uh, debates have occurred uh, on in writing on pens and paper uh, articles and that which are published and so the, the 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 flood is so significant that it's very much a focus of opposition you know like if if um if the flood occurred and if the world is young then the then evolution's dead in the water right. there's no way that there's no time for evolution to happen so that it kills the whole naturalistic worldview and so the opposition to flood geology is very strong. And so you find find people which, and particularly, and that's connected with the age of the earth. So it's flood geology, it washes away the millions of years. So, uh, and the age, uh, the, uh, the age of the earth, a young earth kills, uh, it kills naturalism. Right, so, so that, um, even this quote that I have up is very important. So you see theory of evolution and geology intertwined and that interpretation is the either the modern scientistical view or the creationist view, right? Yeah. Gotcha. So, and oh, uh, that's right. Sure, sure, uh, that's right. Sure, this uh, guy on BBC saying it's uh, he sees that uh, in England it was geology and the theory of evolution that changed us from a Christian to a pagan nation. Yeah. And it so has. Please continue. Go ahead. So it's interesting that. Um, the Age of the Earth, uh, there's a book by uh, a lady called Sherry Lewis, and she wrote a book called The Dating Game, which gives something about the history of the Age of the Earth. I think that's that's it. And she talks about how that, how it was developed. And so back in the late 1800s, you know, people, they tried to figure out how old the Earth was and they used they measured the salt in the ocean, how the salt in the ocean was accumulating. Or they measured... The uh, assumed that the sun was gravitationally collapsing, uh, and uh, another guy by the name of Kelvin measured how the Earth was cooling, uh, assuming it was once a molten ball, how long it would take to cool. So Kelvin was a thermodynamicist, Kelvinator fridges. I don't know if you have them in the states, but uh, that comes after him, Lord Kelvin. 
So from these guys worked out that the world was about 20 million years old based on those assumptions. And Charles Darwin said, he said about Kelvin, he said, Lord Kelvin is, you know, the, the, the guy that causes me more trouble than anyone else. I just really dislike what he's come up with because 20 million years is nowhere near enough time for me, for my idea of evolution. Right. So uh, he said, I need an enormous amount of time before the Cambrian for my for for my for evolution. So that was Darwin. And uh, and so basically the the physicist Kelvin and these others who were physicists and their calculations, the geologists and the biologists didn't like it because it was not didn't fit in with what they wanted for their theories to work. Uh, which illustrates that the the, age, the the question is, what age would you like? What age? Would, <laughs> I mean, it shouldn't but, be upon somebody's own opinion or something to fit their theory, which well, is still it, a theory. It, uh, evolution. It, that's right. It shouldn't be, but it is because people work within a worldview, and right. so they look for evidence which is going to support their worldview. And if they find evidence which contradicts it. They don't say, oh, my worldview is wrong. They'll say, oh, this is going to be interesting to explore this and to see how we can explain that, you know. So it becomes a um, – people don't realise that that's how, how it works. Have you heard about um, the uh, dinosaur soft tissue? Have, uh, you probably heard about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're finding it. They're, they're, have, they're trying to rationalise it away. But, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, well, Mary Schweitzer was the first person. She, she's the one that found it at first. And, of course, it created an enormous stir, uh, stir about finding uh, blood cells in dinosaur bones, which just looked like modern bones. And she uh, and the whole issue was, and she said it this way, she said, uh, I couldn't believe it, she said. I said to the lab technician, these bones are 70 million years old. How could blood cells survive that long? So that's worldview, right? right. She didn't right. say these blood cells prove that the world is not 70 million years old. Right. What she said is I've made a discovery. We're going to have to get lots of more research to find out how to explain it in fitting with the 70 million year age. So that's the way worldviews work. And so People cr accuse creationists of being biased. You start with the answer, but everybody does. Everybody do starts with the answer. And so these worldviews can't be falsified. You know, evolution can't be falsified. It's uh, just um, anything that's contrary, will they'll look for, you know, the person with that worldview will look for a way of explaining it uh, within, within his worldview. And it is interesting because, in my understanding, the geologic record does not support evolutionary biology at all because you don't see these changes that are supposed to be happening. Do you find that correct? That's right. The, the characteristics of the fossils, there's uh, three characteristics. One is they suddenly appear, partic a particular uh, creature or organism suddenly appears, and there's uh, it's hard to find any evidence of a... Uh, a, a slowly, uh, slowly organic trail leading up to them. Once they appear, they stay the same. It's called stasis. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould said it's a, 
it's a, uh, a, a trade secret of the fossil record. And the other thing is that they suddenly disappear. And so, um, so that's basically the fossil record, uh, you know, and it does not support evolution. Yeah, it's interesting. I've read a little bit about Gould and Dawkins, and they're actually supposed they're naturalists, but their cultural life is actually semi-Christian, if not Christian. They really like the morality of it. It's really fascinating that they can be of two minds like that. Uh, pretty fascinating. Yeah, we are at about thirty-five minutes. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed? Or where can people find your work or reach out to you in social media? Uh, yeah, well, uh, creation.com, there's a lot of uh, my work's been published there. There's videos there, uh, as well as lots of articles that I've written. I have a website called biblicalgeology.net where I've tended to write a material which is uh, uh, not not of such a uh, global interest, more, more local, local interest and... Uh, also, I'm available on Facebook. I think Tasman Walker on Facebook. People can contact me there. And this is you right here, right? Biblical Theology and Independent Voices. Big, biblical Geology. Geology.net. Geology. So it should be there. If you go biblicalgeology.net forward slash blog. I didn't yeah. come across this, but here it is here. Oh, yeah. You have tons of information here. There's lots of information, and there's a blog as well. Uh, which is good, really good. And you're on Facebook, so do you have a? So this is—is is there a way to contact you through this website, Biblical Geology? Yeah, through the website you can contact me. Plus through Creation.com, you can send a, a, a an email to me, and we can get connected that way. That's the main way that I'm uh, uh, available. It's interesting. I developed a biblical geological model, and that's what's on the biblicalgeology.net, so to actually identify what parts of the geologic column belong where. Because when I started out as a creationist and reading the creationist literature, I could not see where Noah's flood fitted in the geologic column. So I have a, and basically as a result of this, and quite a number of people use it now, and uh, this uh, this particular model, uh, it's, it's quite amazing. It starts with the Bible. It assumes the Bible is recording true history, and, and then it says, so what would have affected the geology and uh, what would we expect to see and identify to be able to, to, to pinpoint the things? And this so is what you're referencing right here, right? A biblical geologic model? That's it. That's right. it. And I, and I presented that at the International Conference of Creationism in... Uh, 1994, which is a while ago, and a guy called Michael Ord picked up on that, uh, and and a few others have sort of uh, they, they've done me a favour in that they've um, sort of said, well, we're going to use it, so they're using it, and uh, it works well. And as a consequence of that, uh, I've produced an article which has proved quite interesting. On it's published on uh, Creation.com called the geological transformation tool, geological transformation tool. And that's uh, basically uh, anybody, if when they go around touring somewhere or they're reading a book about geology or reading a National Geographic and they start quoting dates and that, you can go to that tool and you put the dates in. There's a, that should be a diagram somewhere down there. Is there? 
Is it uh, Sergio? There it is. There it is. There's a diagram. Okay. Go up a bit. Go up a bit. Uh, oh, this. This gotcha. Yeah, there, there's a diagram. So that's the geologic column, and it shows where it fits within a biblical worldview. So you've got the waters of Noah's flood rising, the waters of Noah's flood falling, and then you have the post-flood. Now, there's a lot of debate amongst creationists about where these actual lines fit, and so there's a little bit of um, to and fro on that, and I talk about that in the article. But that gives a very good first base uh, you sort of say, well, these are Devonian rocks. You go to the thing, look up Devonian, and you see, oh, that's about as the waters were sort of, you know, they're getting towards their peak and uh, or something like that. So it's a very good tool to be able to find your way around. It's not, uh, it's preliminary, and so, uh, but it gives you a first good, a good estimate. Great. So people can check that out at creation.com and also your website, is again, biblicalgeology.net, all one word, biblicalgeology.net. Yeah, uh, that's, that's right, Bill. That's right. Okay, great. Well, that was really fascinating. It was really uh, interesting to me to, to hear you talk about that because I have a lot of questions about some of this, the naturalism and the assumptions and the geologic record, how they interpret it. But I think you really made your points very well. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I appreciate you, William. It's uh, Bill. It's really great to be able to join your program. Uh, William Ramsey investigates. All awesome. the best to you. Likewise. God bless. God bless.